0: Hi, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Here at the Spy Museum, we get the world's most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies and intelligence officers, coming in to answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected author briefings. We are joined today by Doug Waller, who is a veteran correspondent, author, and lecturer. In almost two decades as a Washington journalist, he covered the Pentagon, Congress, the State Department, the White House, and the CIA. From 1994 to 2007, Waller served in Time Magazine's Washington Bureau, first as a correspondent and then as a senior correspondent. At Time, Doug covered foreign affairs extensively as a diplomatic correspondent, traveling through Europe, Asia, and the Middle East, as well as in the Persian Gulf region. He has reported extensively in the past on Middle East peace negotiations and the wars in Iraq. He came to Time in 1994 from Newsweek, where he reported on major military conflicts from the Gulf War to Somalia to Haiti. And before joining Newsweek in 1988, he served as a legislative assistant on the staffs of a U.S. senator and a representative. He is the author of nine books, most notably the New York Times bestseller Wild Bill Donovan, the spymaster who created the OSS, and Modern American Espionage, which is coming out in 2011. And the bestsellers, The Commandos, The Inside Story of America's Secret Soldiers from 1994, and Big Red, The Three-Month Voyage of a Trident Nuclear Submarine in 2001. His newest book is Disciples, the World War II Missions of the CIA Directors Who Fought for Wild Bill Donovan. And of course, these disciples are Alan Dulles, Richard Helms, William Colby, and William Casey. Welcome, Doug. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us at the International Spy Museum.
1: Oh, it's good to be here.
0: So I usually ask two questions of all of our authors. Uh, The first is, what was your inspiration for this book? And I think it seems somewhat clear in this case that based on your last book on Donovan, this was a natural sequel to what came before it.
1: Well, it was. uh, Although, after I finished the Donovan biography, I really had to figure out what I wanted to do next. I mean, by way of background, Donovan was really a larger-than-life figure. You're talking about uh, a hero in World War I who won the Medal of Honor for heroism on the battlefield, a uh, millionaire Republican lawyer uh, who had been often mentioned as a uh, presidential candidate, and the man Franklin Roosevelt picked to be his spy master in World War II. He was also a controversial character. His agents in the field revered him. His political enemies in Washington, and he had a lot of them, thought he was as big a threat uh, to America as Adolf Hitler was. So he's going to be a hard act to follow. And I really hunted around for the next subject. Finally, uh, an archivist at the National Archives who I'd worked with very closely uh, on the Donovan biography suggested, why don't you do uh, a book on the three men who served under Donovan in the OSS and who later uh, uh, became CIA directors, which, as you say, was Alan Dulles, Richard Helms, William Colby, and William Casey. And I thought, "Wow, that's a terrific idea. Why didn't I think of that?" Uh, so that was the next uh, uh, subject for the for the next book. These uh, four men served under uh, under Donovan during World War
0: II. It's it's amazing sometimes that that inspiration for books comes from some of the most random places. Mm. Uh, you, you, you hinted a little bit at sources. Obviously, you spent time in the National Archives. Can you talk a little bit about your source material for this book?
1: The good news is that all the OSS records are declassified uh, at the National Archives in College Park, Maryland. The bad news is that all the records are declassified at uh, National Archives at College Park, Maryland, because there are millions yeah. of pages of documents there. Uh, because of the declassification procedures the CIA had for declassifying the OSS documents, they didn't all come out at the same time. They came out bits and pieces. Uh, one paper from this pile would, file would be declassified. Another one would stay uh, classified for a while. Then it would uh, get uh, made, made public, and the two wouldn't be matched. So what you have at the National Archive, through no fault of the archivists there, is a bowl of spaghetti in terms of uh you know different files and everything it took me three months just to learn how to wend my way through uh the oss records uh there with the help of a number of archivists now that's one place uh i uh for this bio- uh ensemble biography and for my donovan biography too i went to archives uh and libraries all over the u.s where other records uh were scattered for example, uh, Alan Dulles' uh, records are at Princeton University uh, at their manuscript archive up there. So are Bill Colby's records. Richard Helms' records are at Georgetown University. Uh, William Casey's records are at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Uh, the, uh, in addition to going around the United States and uh, you know, collecting a lot of that material, I also went to, uh, to England too to the National Archives at Kew uh, in London, which housed the uh, British Special Operations Executive Records and also some of the uh, MI6, the British Secret Intelligence Service records, that have uh, been declassified. Uh, There were other – I mean, the families of the four subjects cooperated with me, uh, provided me a lot of information from their, uh, their own personal files, uh, you know, disparate places like Columbia University has an oral history project where people go and give their oral histories mm-hmm. there. And there were some, you know, there were scores of uh, uh, oral histories there dealing with uh, particularly Alan Dulles and uh, a couple of uh, of my other subjects. So, and it, all told, it took about, well, it took three and a half years to research and write, mm-hmm. write this book. Uh,
0: Talking about the archives at College Park conjuring up Bad memories <laughs> uh, the OSS document. You're exactly right. It's, just, it's, a, it's a mess. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it takes a long time to figure out how to, how to work your way through those. Um, we want to jump right into your book, but, but while I have you here and talking about Donovan, since you, you are uh, you know, the author of Wild Bill Donovan, uh, I think there's two interesting things about Donovan I want to throw towards you. One is uh, he, he and FDR could not have been more opposite on almost every single issue, Except for, they agreed almost completely of the need to have a strong foreign policy and a centralized intelligence agency. It's very similar to of, of people talk about Lincoln and the team of rivals. But mm-hmm. there's this is like modern day if a if Hillary Clinton brought on you know Donald Trump or somebody from the far right to be part maybe not Trump but I mean, Donovan was a war hero and everybody else right. but brought on somebody like polar opposite mm-hmm. to be the CIA chief today. Uh, and the second thing I found interesting, you can talk about both of these together, uh, about Donovan, uh, was that how little he was respected by the other intelligence chiefs, by the head of G2, General Strong, by the head of ONI. And there's an anecdote where it almost took a year before another general officer actually met with Donovan at his headquarters uh, here in Washington. And it ended up being Leslie Groves, who was taking on the Manhattan Project intelligence wing. Uh, they always The others, ONI and G2, always sent their minions. Uh, and just that, that – the, the organization that becomes the CIA, it's very interesting to think the fact that at the very beginning, no one even wanted to to interact with them at the highest levels to give someone like Donovan, the most celebrated war hero in American history to that point, the time of day.
1: Yeah. Uh, first with FDR. Donovan had a complicated relationship with FDR. He had a complicated relationship with most everybody, so that's not unusual. What is unusual is that these two guys – were really political enemies from New York politics. Go back to 1932. Donovan ran for governor of New York. His goal at that point was to be president of the United States, and and the New York governorship was an ideal stepping stone to the presidency. Keep in mind, Franklin Roosevelt was running for uh, president in 1932. Donovan ran against a guy named Herbert Lehman, who had been Roosevelt's lieutenant governor. He ended up saying as many nasty things about roosevelt as he did about layman i mean one point on the campaign trail he accused roosevelt of being quote crafty another time he accused him of being a quote hyde park faker because roosevelt claimed he was a simple far- farmer from hyde park and donovan said that was a bunch of baloney now in today's politics that's pretty milk toast. but back then it was fighting words roosevelt for his part Uh, had surrogates go after Donovan in the New York governor's race, Uh, one of whom was Eleanor Roosevelt. She hit the trail and trashed Donovan. Fast forward to 1940 uh, going into 41. Roosevelt's preparing the nation for war. He's building up the nation's defenses. Donovan, even though he was a conservative Republican, he thought Roosevelt's New Deal was a communist plot to take over America, was part of the internationalist wing of the Republican Party. He too believed that the uh, nation needed to build itself up for war and uh, and prepare its defenses. So at that point, you had two very canny politicians who saw common cause in, in one another. Roosevelt sent Donovan out on two diplomatic missions to Europe. Uh, first off, to assess, uh, answer a very simple question in uh, the summer of 1940 could Winston Churchill survive, or was uh, Hitler going to take over England? And that was a question uh, that Roosevelt didn't have a clear answer to at that point. Later, toward the end of 1940, going into 1941, uh, Donovan went on another mission for Roosevelt, not only to England but also to the Balkan states, uh, to assess the situation there uh, uh, for, uh, for the president. Again, because you keep in mind, Roosevelt's making major foreign policy decisions at this point, not the least of which is lend-lease aid Mm -hmm. uh, and how to get it through Congress to get it to the British. And he's making a lot of these overseas decisions, largely blind to what lay ahead of him uh, overseas. In fact, sometimes he worried so much of what he didn't know that it would make him physically ill. Mm. In July 1941, Roosevelt signs an executive order making Donovan his coordinator of information. A year later, it would be called the Office of Strategic Services. The, uh, Donovan ended up having ferocious uh, political battles here in Washington uh, with his bureaucratic enemies. He, he often said that he had fiercer fights in Washington than he did with Adolf Hitler in Europe. J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, thought Donovan's organization was the biggest collection of amateurs and misfits he'd ever seen. Well, truth be told, in the beginning, it was a collection of amateurs. The, uh, the uh, War Department the Navy, uh, George Marshall, the chief of staff of the Army, at first wanted no part of Donovan's organization. He thought Donovan was trying to set himself up as a czar to take over Army and Navy intelligence, which, oh, by the way, if uh, Roosevelt had let him, that's exactly what Donovan had in mind. Uh, Marshall eventually came to accept uh, donovan 's organization, but there were senior intelligence officers under uh, Marshall who never did, who despised Donovan, who uh, believed his organization was a quote hydra headed organization that was out to destroy the republic uh, At one point, his senior intelligence officers set up a espionage a foreign espionage unit behind donovan 's back. Hmm. Uh, It was nicknamed The Pond. And its mission was not only to spy behind Donovan's back overseas, it collected information on Donovan, collected intelligence on his officers. They even collected information on the wives of intelligence officers. So, you know, they all played pretty hardball back then. Donovan spent a good year, almost two years, building up his organization in the beginning beginning and fighting off his uh, bureaucratic enemies so he could actually get into the fight.
0: I mean, it's no surprise that when FDR dies... The OSS days are numbered.
1: Well, it is. Uh, Harry Truman uh, had no relationship with Donovan. Uh, And you had really bad chemistry between these two guys. On the one hand, you had a wealthy millionaire Republican Wall Street lawyer. Uh, On the other hand, you had a failed Missouri haberdasher who was a diehard Democrat. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't going to be good karma between these two guys. Roosevelt shut down the uh, OSS at the end of uh, September 1945. Parceled out its functions to the uh, the Pentagon and the State Department. Now Roosevelt wasn't deaf and dumb to the need for you know a foreign intelligence service, and and he knew he had threats overseas, uh, you know, with the evolving Cold War. He just didn't want Donovan or his OSS to be any part of it.
0: So let's let's take a look at the the four different uh, personalities that you talk about in this Mm -hmm. book. Some people may think that. The CIA director is a certain type. You have to be a kind of sa- particular kind of person to be an effective CIA director. But these are all very, very different people. Uh, and, and their backgrounds are extraordinarily different. And, of course, the one thing that really brings them all together, other than being in the OSS and CIA, is that they're all mired in controversy at one point as, their C- as a CIA director. Dulles, of course, with the Bay of Pigs invasion and Iran and Guatemala long before that. Uh, Helms lied to Congress uh, about CIA covert action, Colby is reviled by many people within the agency for releasing the family jewels, and then Casey almost brings down Ronald Reagan's presidency with Iran Contra. Um, we'll get back. to... Let's take them one at a time. I think that's the easiest way to do it. Let, let's start with Dulles because he's the obvious one to begin with. Dulles seems to me to be very similar, in many respects, to Donovan, and particularly the idea of the kind of the covert action cowboy. The Let's try anything, throw stuff at the wall, and see what sticks. And if stuff fails, oh, well, we're going to have some stuff that works, and that's all that matters.
1: Well, it's true. Uh, Ironically, uh, Dulles uh, would never admit that, that he and Donovan were a lot alike. And that he, uh, well, he ran the CIA basically the way he ran the OSS station in Bern. Dulles also thought he could run the OSS better than Donovan could. And Donovan knew uh, that's what Dulles had in mind. Uh, Donovan, for his part, thought Dulles uh, was a poor administrator, uh, particularly as the OSS station in Bern got larger. Interestingly, uh, Dulles' first uh, job when he joined the OSS was to go to New York City and set up a major outpost there. Uh, New York turned out to be an ideal place to recruit foreign spies. (laughs) It was full of emigres, refugees that came in, uh, you know, European expats, ex-royalties, a lot of them kind of shady characters who were dreaming up uh, uh, covert operations in their Manhattan salons for ways to in, uh, destabilize uh, German-occupied territories. Uh, Dulles, uh, and really Donovan and Dulles, didn't really mind that most of these uh, would-be emigre spies turned out to be a waste of their time. Uh, that New York was an experimental area for him to try out new things. So, for example, uh, Dulles had uh, his officers, uh, when they interviewed uh, German uh, or European emigres, they would buy their clothes from them so that they could use those clothes for agents infiltrating into uh, Nazi-occupied areas so they could blend in. Another uh, unit uh, Dulles set up was an insurance unit. Uh, Now, why would he be interested uh, in insurance files? These are uh, insurance records that American businesses had on Nazi uh, or uh, Nazi-occupied companies before the war. Uh, Well, it was because those insurance records also contained, very often the blueprints of the buildings being insured, uh, which the Air Forces found very uh, helpful in determining how they should be bombed. In November 1942, Dulles goes to Bern, Switzerland, to set up a a station there. He specifically lobbied to go to Bern, Switzerland, mainly because nobody else was there. Donovan couldn't get to him, Mm -hmm. uh, and he could run his own show, and he really did. He set up what amounted to a mini CIA in Bern, Switzerland. Not only uh, hatching uh, espionage operations against the Germans, but funding guerrilla groups in occupied France and Italy, uh, hatching propaganda plots, and, even, and also inundating Washington with foreign policy advice on how to deal with the Axis. Much of it was unsolicited advice, mm-hmm. by the way.
0: Well, you, you can see a lot if you look at his background to understand why Dulles believed that he was at least a peer of Donovan's and not necessarily an employee. He's really a member of diplomatic royalty, in the United States. Uh, his grandfather was a Secretary of State uh, for Benjamin Harrison, John Foster. His uncle was Secretary of State for Woodrow Wilson, Robert Lansing. Of course, his brother becomes Secretary of State later on. And even he got a start at the State Department. This is really kind of what what, uh, what taught Dulles how to do intelligence in the first place. Can you talk a little bit about his life prior to the Second World War?
1: Well, it was. Uh, he, was he was born in the 1890s uh, with a club foot. The surgeons repaired it, but the family always treated it as a dark se- secret uh, they didn't want to talk about. He uh, was a precocious child. Uh, as you mentioned, he comes from diplomatic nobility. At the age of eight, he wrote a book on the Second Boer War. Now, it was only 31 pages long, had a lot of spelling mistakes in it, but his grandfather, the Secretary of State, uh, had 700 copies of it published, uh, and he got a good review in the Washington Post. <laughs> So in 1916, he joined the Foreign Service uh, and was stationed in Bern, Switzerland with the American legation there. He became the legation's de facto intelligence officer simply because nobody else was available for the job. Learned some hard lessons along the way. Uh, Remember, Switzerland at that time was an espionage haven Mm -hmm. for the warring powers. Everyone had spies there, and they were all spying on each other and concocting all kinds of plots. Uh, uh, For example, one time a man with a uh, very thick Russian accent called the American legation in Bern. wanted to uh, speak to an American diplomat. Dulles, who happened to be manning the phones that afternoon, was late for a tennis date. He said, call back tomorrow morning and somebody might be able to talk to you and hung up. Found out later that the uh, Russian who had called was Vladimir Lenin, who was heading back to uh, Russia the next day. Dulles would tell that story to new CIA officers and recruits coming in, never turned down a meeting, even with the most suspicious of characters.
0: It seems of all all the people that we'll talk about here, Dulles, it's the most difficult, I believe, to call Dulles a disciple of Donovan. And, and many of the they're almost equals. Uh, you know, you even say in the book that Dulles' code number, and everyone in code numbers their names, was 110, Donovan's was 109. Uh, and in particularly, as you mentioned, in Bern, where Dulles almost had carte blanche to do just about anything he wanted to do.
1: Well, he definitely, and he was, uh, if not a disciple of Donovan, certainly of World War II, certainly of the OSS. It had a profound effect on him. In fact, he he he, he mentioned a number of times that really his time in Bern, uh as really a lone wolf spa, spy were the best years of his life. Uh, in fact, he, he as... Uh, when Switzerland opened up and more officers poured into his, his station, Dulles became kind of unhappy because then he had to you know, deal with an administrative mm-hmm. load and there were a lot of other cooks in his kitchen.
0: Well, I mean, Dulles has a lot of of, of events in his life, or achievements or things he's considered infamous for, <laughs> uh, depending on what side of the aisle you're on even, even or what philosophy you have, whether, again, it's Guatemala or Iran or Bay of Pigs. Perhaps his crowning achievement, and let me ask you about this, is an operation that he runs at the very end of war, Sunrise. Is it is it fair to say uh, that this can, should be considered one of Dulles' claims to fame when it comes to his intelligence background?
1: Dulles certainly uh, considered it one of his claims to fame. In fact, he had a, a talked with Hollywood about writing a movie script on it afterwards. Uh, and it was uh, an achievement, although other officers you know, around that time, questioned how much value it had. By way of background, uh, as we're talking February 1945 going into March 1945, Dulles gets a pro – he's getting a lot of peace feelers from the Germans then, from the Nazis, but they're literally lined up at his door with peace feelers. I mean, one of them came from uh, Himmler, you know, his representative, Mm -hmm. so wanted to see what he could cut a deal to save his skin, and Dulles wouldn't have anything to do with him. One of the peace feelers, though, came in uh, from the senior Nazi officer, Karl Wolf, in northern Italy, uh, who could see the war was lost, uh, and I think he wanted to get you know, get on the side that was going to win, too, and began neg- very secret negotiations with Dulles that were codenamed Sunrise. The British codenamed it's Crosswords because uh, uh, Churchill thought it was a puzzle that would never be solved, uh, and for... Several months, they went back and forth trying to negotiate the surrender of German forces in northern Italy. Very, very difficult process. It's it's difficult in any war to surre- uh, achieve a surrender of that uh, large an army uh, for a country that hadn't, hadn't been willing to give up. It involved it eventually uh, perpetuated a political diplomatic crisis between Roosevelt and Stalin because when Stalin's agents picked up wind of the sunrise negotiations it didn't take them long to find out about it they demanded to get in on the uh negotiations eisenhower and roosevelt and uh uh the war department said no uh this is our front our theater uh we'll negotiate it uh there if anything happens some of the most uh tense tensest and most uh acrid diplomatic exchanges or exchange of letters between Stalin and Roosevelt occurred over the sunrise talks. Mm -hmm. So they dragged on. Eventually, uh, Dulles was able to achieve a surrender of uh, the German forces in Italy several days before the surrender of the entire German army uh, on May 8, 1945. At that point, Dulles saved probably thousands of lives as a result of the negotiations he uh, concluded in Sunrise. Most of those lives were probably going to be German lives because at that point the allies uh, were winning in northern Italy and, uh, you know, the Germans were on on the defensive. So it's it's a good part uh, – there's a section of the book on it because of the dance of uh, diplomacy Mm -hmm. here, which was extremely complicated – and uh you know the whole uh case is debated really to this day
0: right let me shift focus to bill casey and i I understand this is chronologically out of order because casey is the last of the dci's from this group but i think casey makes a lot of sense next because he he is almost the polar opposite of Dulles in many ways Mm -hmm. as aristocratic as the Dulles family was the casey family was really the opposite it's blue collar
1: and Mm -hmm. as
0: Uh, All over the place, administratively and bureaucratically, as Dulles was, Casey is really the administrative guru of this group. Um, And he's a true Donovan disciple, someone who worshipped Donovan. I mean, talk in the book about the fact that he had a a bronze bust of Donovan in his house. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about Casey's background? And and, and as I was reading about him, and you can talk about this, he almost seems like uh, a, a young version or he wouldn't uh, – probably the same age version of Robert McNamara, kind of a number cruncher, a statistician. Uh, am I making an improper analogy there or does that kind of make a lot of sense to you?
1: No, that's the way he began. He was born in 1913, set a family record that his mother could have done without. He arrived weighing a staggering 14 pounds. Uh, <laughs> He was uh, he drove the nuns at Catholic school nuts because he was intent on educating himself the way he saw fit. His father was a Tammany Hall bureaucrat. At first, he th- uh, thought he might want to be a social worker eventually uh, he went to Fordham University, the first in his family to go to college, uh, then went to American uh, or Catholic University of America here in Washington uh, became uh, disenchanted with uh, social work. Uh, After several months as a New York social worker, he thought welfare money was being wasted and and Franklin Roosevelt was a bleeding heart liberal. Went to law school at night, got a law degree. Uh, By the time uh, Hitler invaded Poland, he was working for a a think tank called the Research Institute of America, which churned out uh, reports for businesses advising him on, on how to land contracts with Roosevelt's New Deal. After the war, uh, after the United States entered the war, Casey, who by that time was married and had a baby girl, wanted in on the action. He uh, talked the Navy into making him a lieutenant junior grade, and he really had to talk him into it. The Navy at first wasn't impressed with this guy who didn't seem to have much military bearing to him, but they found a place for him in uh, in the services ship buying program. Uh, uh, Casey soon became bored with pushing paper for the Navy, heard about this organization Donovan had that uh, a lot of wealthy uh, young men were going to, managed to wangle an interview with him. Uh, the OSS recruiters also weren't particularly impressed with Casey. Uh, he seemed to be an officer, didn't look really like an officer, but they, uh, they hired him. Uh, They discovered that Casey was a a wizard administration and from his Research Institute of America days could take large chunks of information and boil them down into concise, clear Mm -hmm. intelligence reports. He was packed off to the uh, OSS's very important station in London at Grosvenor Square uh, basically to handle the paperwork flow there. In no time, Casey was into everything uh, in London. He was like a human tornado. Uh, One uh, officer there who served with him told me, uh, you could not not pay attention to Bill Casey. December 1944, Donovan, who's impressed with this 31-year-old Navy lieutenant, uh, who seemed to be everywhere and doing everything, made him his chief of secret intelligence for all of uh, Europe uh, with the specific mission to penetrate Nazi Germany. That was a daunting mission at that point, because even though the Germans were losing the war by that uh, point, Nazi Germany was still one of the most tightly controlled police states uh, in the world. I mean, the average German citizen had to have at least 18 basic identity documents on them, which Casey's unit, uh, code-named Bach, had to quickly learn how to forge. Mm-hmm. Casey managed to parachute 150 agents into uh, Germany uh, in a... As the Allies advanced on Germany, and a lot of them had to operate on, on the fly. I mean, one of the teams, a two-man team, codenamed Chauffeur, uh, talked two French girls, at a, a French women, at a Bavarian brothel into working with them. And so, while the, uh, the French women serviced their Wehrmacht uh, clients, one of the Chauffeur agents uh, sat in the closet with a flashlight and a pen, taking notes on what the guy blurted out. Uh, so, I mean, and, and it, it, he had kind of a mix, mixed record with a lot of these agents going in. They were going in late, very, very dangerous operations. Mm-hmm. Of the 105 missions that he had, only about 57 were considered successful.
0: Hmm. Well, and you talk about the fact that he very quickly gained Donovan's trust, and I think you point out in the book that Donovan doesn't have the ability to move freely throughout Europe. He doesn't have the ability to be on the ground seeing what's going on. And in many ways, Casey was his eyes and ears. Over in Europe during the war.
1: Well, he did. Uh, he sent Casey out uh, uh, all over uh, the European theater, and he would file reports back to Donovan on it. And it really impressed him. Also sent Casey out to local bookstores in London to uh, pick up the latest books. Uh, Casey loved books about as much as Donovan did. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, let's shift our focus to, to Richard Helms. Um, he he has a, a, a different background like the others. Uh, he A little bit more like Dulles. He has, He's from a moneyed elite family. Uh, but both of his parents, as you mentioned in the book, are are bipolar, so it had to have been a little bit of an interesting childhood growing up. Um, Unlike some of these others, particularly Casey, but also Dulles, uh, he was a popular guy. He was the big man on campus, kind of somebody who walked in the room and kind of took control of it. How does that help him later in his career, even pre-World War II? You talk about his career as a journalist and how that really uh, prepares him to be an intelligence agent during the war. Casey was
1: the consummate spy. Uh, he had a Mona Lisa-like smile. His hair always slicked back. Uh, he was immaculately dressed. He bought his shoes for his tall, short, high-arched feet at $700 a pair from Peel & Company in London. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, you talk to folks in the CIA. They can remember all kinds of anecdotes on a lot of the other, the many characters in the, uh, in the CIA. No one can ever remember a good story about Casey. Or I Helms. Mean, you know. I mean, I'm sorry, no, about Helms. No, no. no one can remember a good uh, story about, uh, about Helms. Uh, the consummate intelligence officer, he never left a trail uh, behind him. Um, he uh, was born in 1930, uh, shortly around the time uh, Casey was born, uh, but that, uh, the similarity of uh, the two boys ended there. Helms' uh, grandfather was a very famous international banker. His father uh, was an Alcoa executive uh, who had mental issues along with his mother. He was educated uh, at one point in Europe at the Le Rosé School, a very exclusive school in Switzerland, and then at the Real Gymnasium in Freiburg, Germany. He said that really was a perfect education for uh, for a spy. He did go to Williams College, one of the little ivies, uh, had a Phi Beta Kappa key and Harvard Law School, open to him if he wanted it. Mm -hmm. But he wanted to go in newspaper publishing. He wanted to be a reporter. He signed on with the United Press uh, and in 1935 was sent to Berlin, where Adolf Hitler was wildly popular. had a very uh, famous uh, lunch with Hitler in 1936, September 1936, after the Nuremberg rallies, uh, which uh, had a, you know, a sizable effect on him. Uh, when World War II uh, broke out for the United States after Pearl Harbor, Helms uh, was in the Navy, perfectly happy uh, in in their New York office plotting uh, the ship movements of of merchant marine fleets so they could avoid uh, German U-boat packs, when out of the blue, the OSS summoned him uh, to Washington, to its headquarters. Turned out the OSS had sent a request to the Navy for an officer who spoke German and French, had lived overseas, and been a reporter. Well, an IBM computer in the Navy Personnel Office, and they had IBM computers back then, spit out Helms' name. Uh, before he knew it, Helms was at a uh, farm north of uh, Baltimore uh, for two weeks of spy training. And this is where he learned to develop a cover story, where he learned uh, how to uh, blackmail foreign officials for information. How to evade uh, Gestapo agents? How to fight dirty in a bar uh, with a you know a broken uh, whiskey bottle? Uh, he, I mean, one of the exercises he went on a training exercise. They gave him eighteen dollars and told him to go infiltrate into a a Pittsburgh uh, factory and steal uh, documents on its war production. So Casey, uh, I mean, so I'm sorry, So Helms, his stomach all knotted up, his palms all sweaty slipped into the uh, Pittsburgh plant and absconded with documents from unattended uh, desks and took them out past inattentive guards. Mm -hmm. Uh, They called these exercises schemes. Uh, Now, two weeks of spy training wasn't enough to make him a proficient spy in the field, but it was enough for an OSS staff job in Washington where he uh, first uh, was with a planning unit that dreamed up operations for overseas stations then uh, set up uh, work uh, with a Bureau on Penetrating uh, Germany uh, for intelligence. Also had other kind of odd jobs, too. Uh, one time, uh, Donovan uh, brought Charles de Gaulle's intelligence chief, who was this unsavory French colonel, to Washington for basically – or to the U.S. for a junket to butter him up. Uh, because Helms had been a newspaper man, and had, uh, and spoke French, he was assigned to the escort team for the colonel and his aides with the very important mission of keeping the whole trip out of American newspapers. Uh, and they had a grand time for several weeks. Uh, Helms, the escort team, and the French colonel and his staff toured all over and saw the sites. They uh, were treated to an expensive uh, dinner at Antoine's restaurant in New Orleans. In Hollywood, movie executives arranged for call girls, uh, to entertain the, uh, the Frenchmen in their rooms, and uh, Helms managed to keep it all out of the, out of the newspapers. In January of '45, uh, he eventually gets to London, uh, rooms with Casey, uh, who lived like a slob, uh, and he starts out uh, uh, working, overseeing uh, the Joe handlers uh, in the London station. They called OSS agents that they dropped into, Uh, Occupied territories, Joes, uh, and they assigned each one of them a handler uh, just to make sure they got off uh, and got, you know, and and dropped okay. And Helms oversaw that operation. Later on, he went then to uh, 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 war-torn Berlin uh, after the war to set up a spy station there.
0: And and like Dulles, he's he's one of the two of this group that actually continues on after the OSS into the what was called the SSU. The strategic services unit which was the the remnants of the covert action side that goes to the pentagon Mm -hmm. and then again transitions directly into cia Mm -hmm. Um, so let's look at bill colby now um, because he is uh he is the real spy of the bunch he's the the covert action you know the, the commando the person that you think of uh as the dashing guy behind enemy lines um But his background is just as interesting as the others. You wouldn't suspect someone who parachutes and occupied France to come from the background. Now, his father was an army officer. He's an army brat himself, but a bit of an intellectual, a bit of a spit and polish guy. Um, And Colby's background allows him to have some knowledge of the world because he's an army brat. He travels around, goes to China. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how Colby's background prepares him for his life at OSS?
1: The moving from one station to another was an education in itself uh, for him. Uh, he, uh, it's interesting, though, when uh, Colby liked to quote uh, Napoleon's standing order to his men, which was, march to the sound of the guns. When uh, After Pearl Harbor, however, Colby uh, seemed to be marching in the opposite direction, further and further away from that sound. He uh, wanted to get in on the action. He uh, ended up, though, stuck at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, teaching students how to fire howitzers. Saw a uh, a notice on a bulletin board that they were looking for airborne uh, paratroopers for airborne uh, artillery units. And he signed up, uh, hoping that would get him to the front. In fact, uh, he was worried, though, that uh, because uh, his eyes weren't good, he wore glasses that they wouldn't uh, uh, let him into the airborne artillery unit. So uh, during his physical, while the doctor was out of the room, he memorized the eye chart. Of course the doctor caught him, uh, but figured that his eyes were probably good enough to see the ground when he parachuted to it. Uh, So he passed him. Bad luck, though, uh, struck again for uh, Colby. On a second parachute jump at Fort Benning, Georgia, uh, he broke his right ankle. By the time it healed and he finished his airborne training, Colby was stuck at a replacement pool in Camp McCall, North Carolina, again desperate to get to the sound of those guns. He saw another uh, notice tacked to a bulletin board, this one from some strange unit he'd never heard of called the OSS which said that if you uh, were a paratrooper and you spoke French, and Colby spoke French, call this number and if you were looking for adventure. So he called, and within a month, he's at uh, the Congressional Country Club outside of Washington where the that the OSS had taken over to train spies and saboteurs. He becomes part of a top-secret program codenamed Jedberg, whose mission would be to parachute uh, three-man commando teams into occupied France uh, shortly after D-Day. He eventually ends up training at Milton Hall in Peterborough, north of London, uh, at a facility, a country estate there, the uh, the British uh, set up, uh, which was to train these teams made up mainly of American, British, and French officers. Somewhat of a culture clash uh, between the British and the American Mm -hmm. commandos at this training, which was very rigorous. For example, the British, uh, uh, the Americans had to learn the British way of parachuting. The British parachuted out of planes as low as 500 feet uh, from the ground, and their parachutes didn't come with spares.
0: Well, no reason to have a spare 500 feet. Yeah, yeah, at 500
1: (laughs) feet, there wasn't any time to open it. Uh, The instructors, the British instructors, told the American students that, well, if your chute doesn't open, bring it back, and we'll give you a new one. (laughs) Of course, the Americans didn't find that joke very funny. Colby parachuted into uh, the Burgundy region southeast of Paris in August uh, 1944, organizing French resistance factions there as uh, Patton's Third Army uh, approached and went through. After Patton's uh, Third Army came through his next assignment was leading a a 32-man commando team of norwegian americans to drop into frigid norway in march 1945 extremely dangerous uh mission half his team never made it to norway the planes carrying them uh couldn't find the drop zone in the snow or they crashed uh, killing everyone on board colby managed to uh uh, his team managed to knock out a bridge and destroy a section of railroad track on the Nordland Railroad that carried uh, that was taking German soldiers uh, north to south and out of Norway to uh, Germany, which was that that was the mission of this team. But it was it was for him it was exhausting uh, work. The skiing was just absolutely uh, grueling for him. In fact, they nicknamed one. Mountain, they had to ski over to escape a Nazi patrol Benzedrine Hill because all the Kobe's uh, commandos, practically all of them, had to pop the stimulant pills for the artificial energy to get to its peak. Uh,
0: the the Jedburgh teams and, and these guerrilla teams that were, were put into effect in Norway it really had a lasting impact on the way people fought wars. I mean, it, you could really point to them as being the, uh, the, the foundation or a nascent form of the Green Berets. Well,
1: exactly. In fact, uh, after uh, the uh, Norway operation, uh, Colby wrote a very thoughtful memo memo to his uh, superiors about how uh, small teams in the future should be organized to uh, mobilize guerrilla operations in hostile countries. What he envisioned was remarkably similar to the Mm A-teams you see in today's modern special forces.
0: Let me broaden this out to some broader questions, some bigger questions. Um, The OSS, there's debates about how important the OSS was uh, for winning the Second World War. The SOE, the British uh, version of the OSS, uh, had been fighting the war for years before we joined. We're really the big brother in Europe. The OSS gets a lot of rightful praise for their operations in the Pacific, perhaps more than the European theater of operations. Does it seem strange that these four future directors operated in Europe where the OSS was perhaps the baby brother to the British versus some of the real major OSS victories in the Pacific?
1: Well, it's uh, first off, and I get asked this question by a lot of audiences, okay, what effect did the OSS have on the war? Uh, Did the OSS uh, win the war? And the short answer is no. The the Soviets won the war. (laughs) uh, Did the OSS shorten the war? Again, the answer is no, but that's setting the bar awfully high. I mean, as you mentioned, there there were major factors or forces at work Mm -hmm. uh, that won the war uh, for the Allied side, Uh, the first of which is the fact that Russian and American mothers could produce far more male babies than German and Japanese mothers ever could. Mm -hmm. Number uh, number two, the American military industrial might, uh, the merchant marine uh, 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 fleet that could carry that uh, that hardware to Europe, the army uh, quartermaster corps, the navy supply corps, would get all those machines and arms and ammunition to the front, and oh by the way, the atomic bomb. Right. Now, did the OSS contribute to the war? Uh, sure. You know, just as the soldier landing at D-Day did, uh, the, uh, you know, the Marine in the Pacific, Rosie the Riveter in Los Angeles. Uh, now, these four men uh, were in the European theater, which actually was uh, where most of Donovan's operations, mm-hmm. major operations, were. He was limited in the Pacific. Uh, Douglas MacArthur, the commander of the Southwest Pacific Forces, really wanted no part of Donovan's organization down there. He said, you know, Donovan could supply him men that would be under his command, but he w- couldn't work independently there. Uh, Admiral Nimitz, the chair, uh, the uh, commander of the northern uh, Pacific forces, didn't see much need for, uh, you know, spies and saboteurs and what he saw as largely a naval mm-hmm. uh, operation up there. So Donovan was confined to basically the China-India-Burma right. theater, uh, which were – uh, secondary theaters. They did a lot of work there. Again, uh, Donovan had to spend an awful lot of time fighting to get into the war in right. China, uh, as it was. Our four men, uh, of course, after the uh, war in uh, uh, Europe ended, uh, of course, Dulles and uh, 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 Helms remained uh, to take over the Berlin Station. Casey and Colby came back to, uh, to the United States with the intention of going out to the Pacific, uh, but the war uh, ended, uh, you know, with the, with the dropping of the atomic bombs before they could get there.
0: And let me wrap this up with this broader question. I kind of hinted at it at the very beginning. Uh, is it perhaps, uh, and you, you certainly can disagree with this, is it perhaps as fair to say that Helms, Casey, and Colby were as much Dulles's disciples as Donovan's disciples?
1: Well, they could in a way, although it was funny. There was tension, for example, between Casey and Dulles. Uh, Donovan, uh, of course, as I say, assigned Casey as his uh, chief of uh, intel- secret intelligence for all of Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dulles thought he, uh, Casey was too young for that job. Uh, Dulles also didn't think uh, there was going to be much result uh, from uh, Casey's operation to parachute uh, uh, agents into, into Germany uh, toward the end of the war that uh, there was no support structure set up there, no safe houses. Uh, you know, a lot of them are going to get rolled up, and a lot of them did get rolled up. Uh, so those two, you know, it was some, somewhat of a, a tension there. Uh, the uh, uh, Colby, uh, the dynamics with him uh, and, and Dulles, I mean, he thought uh, Dulles' Bay of Pigs operation was a fiasco mm-hmm. and shouldn't have ever happened. Keep in mind, uh, Colby also turned over to the Justice Department the information that led to uh, Helms' conviction for uh, lying to Congress over the uh, CIA's effort to ask President Salvador Allende in Chile. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, Helms never forgave Colby uh, for that. Casey uh, never forgave uh, Colby for turning over uh, the family jewels report to Congress. In fact, a friend asked Casey one time, you know, well, uh, you know, Colby had to answer questions posed uh, by Congress, and Casey's response was Colby didn't have to understand the questions. (laughs) So it's, you know, between these four, it's a complicated uh, Mm -hmm. relationship. Uh, Dulles passed Helms over for some key positions. Uh, He thought it was more useful to him uh, in kind of a staff role when he probably should have promoted Helms to uh, a higher position and may have saved him a lot of grief uh, with the Bay of Pigs. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they, you know that's what makes the story of these four and, right. and their reactions uh, so interesting, I, I think. Well, absolutely. <laughs> have, I mean, Again,
0: for anyone who thinks that there's a type of person that becomes CIA director, uh, this will uh, disabuse people of that idea. These are such different personalities.
1: Well, they are, although I found a common thread through these four. Uh, they were all smart okay? e- indeed you could call them intellectuals because they were voracious readers, uh, they were very curious individuals, they were creatures of reason too, but they weren't the ivory tower types who'd sit around for hours in doubtful introspection mm-hmm. these were uh, strong decisive, supremely confident men of action, they were doers they believed that they could shape history rather than let it control them
0: Well, the book is Disciples, the World War II Missions of the CIA Directors Who Fought for Wild Bill Donovan. The author is Doug Waller. Doug, thank you for taking the time to join us here at the Spy Museum.
1: Good to talk to you.
0: Perfect. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings. And thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too.